It's good to see you all. We're celebrating the final day of masks. That's what we're celebrating today. (laughs) Next week when you come, you can wear a mask or not wear a mask. And our rule is going to be nobody's going to say anything about it. If you're wearing a mask, great. If you're not wearing a mask, fine. Our rule is we just won't mention it. We're going to be a mask-blind church. We don't even know whether you're wearing a mask or not. So, But we're looking forward to all of the new things that are happening this spring. Um, we're continuing in our series in Colossians. And last week we were talking about the unity that the church has with each other. And good order. And growing in the knowledge of God. And Paul wants that unity for the church in Colossae, and he wants them to be unified with each other. He wants us to be. But this week, as we continue on in chapter 2, Paul's encouragement wants to move beyond the unity of the church. He wants the understanding of the Christians in Colossae and us to not only understand that they belong to a good church and that they're unified with each other and they enjoy that unity and they're using that unity to grow in the knowledge of God, the Apostle Paul wants them to understand how completely they are unified in Jesus and how they belong completely to God. Not just to a local church, not just to uh, an institution, not just to a good supportive community, but that Christians belong fully and completely in their unity with Christ. Lock, stock, and barrel, as believers, as Christians, we belong to God. And I can't really say it any better than Paul is going to. I can't even come close to saying it better than the Apostle Paul is going to say it. And so we're just going to jump into the text today, and we're going to read Paul's encouragement to this good little church in Colossae, and his encouragement to us, And let the significance of the depth of our fully belonging to God land on us and unpack it a little bit today and understand the implication of it in our lives as Christians. Because Paul intends this message to encourage every Christian in the Church of Colossae and every church that his letter got passed on to. And you know what the crazy thing is? Paul's letter to the church of Colossae got passed on, not just to Laodicea and to Galatia and to Philippi, it got passed on to us because we get to read it today. And so he wants us to have the encouragement of his letter passed on to the churches that followed. Let me just pray before we read God's word. Father God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his letters that he wrote from prison, his passionate heart that you gave him for the church and to see it encouraged, to see Christians rooted in the knowledge of you and in this text today to see that we belong to you and that you have made us your own and what we should do about that and what it means to us. And so, Father, as we read your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and it would open eyes, it would open hearts, it would sharpen our minds that the Holy Spirit, he would just lift us closer to you. And that people will see truths that they never saw before. Whether they're seeing you for the first time in a way they've never seen you, or whether Christians who have known you for decades have a deeper understanding of the significance of our belonging. Whatever it is your Holy Spirit wants to do this morning, Lord, 
I just pray he does it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so Colossians 2, 8 to 15. And there's sort of a, a bridge verse here, which I will touch on, but we'll, I'll start at 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. So, verse 8 is sort of the hook, or the link, between what Paul was saying earlier and what he's about to say. As we've been seeing uh, come up again and again in this letter of Colossae, Paul wants the people of the church to know God, to know Christ, to be filled with knowledge, to be filled with wisdom, to be filled with understanding and assurance. We've heard that in almost every message at some point, because Paul repeats it in almost every paragraph. He wants these people to be knowledgeable, wise, understanding, transformed, assured. He said it. And most recently, Paul said that it grows, that knowledge and wisdom grows out of the environment of our Christian unity together, that as we are a unified church, we, our knowledge in Christ has opportunity to, to grow. But he wants to say more, as I said. He wants more than just good order and firm faith and a good community of believers who are well-behaved. It goes deeper than that. It goes down to the depths of our identity with Christ and belonging to God. So verse 8 hooks what he's written to what he will write. So you remember, he said, I don't want you to be deceived by plausible arguments. He just said that a paragraph earlier, and we looked at that last week. So now he says almost the same thing. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. So he says here, don't be taken captive, and I'll try and do my writing again. I'll put some bars over that so that it's like a little, you know, you're in a cage or something. So no one takes you captive. What would you be taken captive by? Well, again, we talked about this last week. This is the hook. Philosophy, empty deceit, according, and then this is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So he's saying this is all these plausible arguments that I talked about. I don't want anybody to take you captive by those things. And not, this is the important thing, not according, what should it be according to? According to Christ. Okay, so this is what Paul is saying here. He wants us to see that we are not deceived by the world, that we're not taking captive. This is like a callback to verse 4, where he said, I don't want you deluded by plausible arguments. I don't want you taken captive by deceitful human tradition and elementary or rudimentary or worldly spirits. Don't fall into that trap. And there's a reason for that, because, and here's where Paul wants to teach them something new, he says, for, the reason why I don't want you that, and and because of that, because for in him, this is Christ, okay, so this is Jesus, for in him the whole fullness 
of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, deity, who's the head of all rule and authority. So we're made complete or we're brought to fullness. That filled in him means we're brought into fullness in Jesus, who is the head or superior to or the source of all rule and authority. So, so Paul is saying to the Colossians, you don't need to look outside of what is in Christ. Don't let anyone capture you by philosophy or lies that they've cobbled together out of their human traditions or human understanding based on rudimentary principles of the world that are, and here's the important bit, as I underlined there, not according to Christ. In other words, as you are out in the world and as people are teaching you things and you're listening to the sort of air of our culture that's filled with these different philosophies and traditions and rudimentary ideas, he says, any truth that doesn't line up according to Christ is untrustworthy. That's basically saying, if it's not according to Christ, then don't be listening to it. That's your filter. According to Christ is the filter we put worldly truth through. So as we hear things coming from the world, we think, does this line up with Scripture? Does this line up with Jesus? Does this line up with the Gospel? Is this comparable to what the Bible tells me? Because all the cultural air that these Christians are breathing in Colossae and in Galatia and in Rome and still today is telling them this. They're hearing this message. Jesus will not make you complete. You will not be full with just Jesus. Christianity is not enough of an answer. You won't be filled to the fullness of your full identity and really know who you are with just Jesus. You need more than that. Christianity will fall short. Jesus will fall short. In fact, some of these philosophies and traditions and empty deceits will say that, in fact, Christianity is holding you back. Jesus is holding you back. Belief in God is holding you back from your full potential. And you need to open your eyes to these other truths the world is offering you. And that kind of temptation or that kind of message coming from the world should sound very familiar to any Christians who have read even five minutes into their Bible. Because if you go back to Genesis 3, verses 4 to 6, we hear what the very first deception of our enemy was. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. What was Satan's argument here? The relationship you have with God is not enough. You're not fully complete. You haven't reached your full potential with your relationship with God. You need to listen to me and what I have to say to reach your full potential. And so this is what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae. Don't be taken captive by the world. The world's going to come to say you and say, you're not full. You're not complete. You're not finished yet. In fact, God's going to hold you back. But he says in verse 9, but it's in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him to completeness, or you've been filled up to the fullness in him who is head and rule of all authority. So Paul wants them to know exactly now how complete in Christ they are, or how fully they are filled up with all the fullness of Jesus. That's really what that sentence means. Paul's just saying you are fully full in the fullness of Jesus who is full of God. You got all the fullness that there is. And this is what I want you to know. How full this fullness of belonging to God is. And he's going to outline four truths. 
four realities of Christians belonging to God and how filled up they are in that belonging. He wants them to know that we are circumcised, that God has cut away our old sin and our old flesh, and our old identity is gone. We are baptized. God has joined us with Jesus, and we identify with Jesus. We are free from debt. God has freed us from old obligations, and we are free from death. God has given us new life. And he wants these Colossians to know these four fundamental truths of what belonging to God means. And all four of those Christian realities carry with them important implications of how we live as disciples today. So first of all, we're circumcised and baptized. And I put these two together because they're very closely interconnected. And at this point, you're kind of thinking, like, why do we have to talk about this stuff? This is all sort of esoteric, weird Christianese stuff. But it's important for us as believers to understand that God didn't do any of these things by accident. The Old Testament and its law and its signs are there for a purpose to point us towards something. The New Testament and its signs and its commands are there and important to us as believers. They're important to our understanding of how we belong to God. And circumcision and baptism are closely connected. Paul wants these Colossians to meditate on this reality when they come to thinking about whether they are complete or full or have all they need to belong to God. So if you're thinking, do I have everything that I need? Paul would say, you need to remember you are circumcised and baptized in Jesus. The circumcision is the removing or the cutting away of the foreskin of male Israelites. And it was the primary sign of belonging to God's people. If you were a male and you wanted to be an Israelite, you were circumcised. And I'm shortly going to stop saying that word repeatedly because it is uncomfortable for men. I get it. And I know you're flinching every time I say it. So we'll get through this. But normally it was done when you were a few days old. This is important. You were born, and then you were circumcised. And so there was no memory of the event, which is good. But if you were an adult, and you converted to Judaism, and you decided you want to follow Yahweh, then guess what? As an adult, yes, you were circumcised. You had to cut away the old flesh, symbolically. The old Jew was being cut away and discarded. And it was a sign, then, of belonging to God's people, to the covenant people of God. And it was a token of inheriting the promises of that covenant that God had with a very specific ethnic people, the Jewish people. He took that people and he set them aside from the rest of the world. And he said, these are my people. In the old covenant, it was an ethnic people, but you could join it. You could be any race and you could join into the people of Israel and you could get the sign of belonging to God's people by circumcision and you could get the token of inheriting all the promises of the covenant of God's people. And it was a picture of new covenant reality in Jesus. It was pointing towards something that was happening spiritually. It was picturing a putting away of and removal of the sinfulness of our flesh in the Old Testament, but more significantly, a picture of what would finally be possible and accomplished by Jesus in the New Testament, in a new covenant, by the cross. That's the sign or the token or the purpose of circumcision. And that's why Paul writes to these Christians in verse 11. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so what Paul is saying to these new believers in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, these people who look to the cross of Jesus and the Messiah and put their hope in Him, they say, you have something new. It's like the old, but it's different. 
It's like the circumcision that you remember, but it's done without human hands. It is no longer physically taking the old flesh and removing it anymore. It's done spiritually by Jesus without human hands. There's a spiritual cutting away of the old. And all the adult male believers cheer at that point. It's a spiritual cutting away of the old. And it's a spiritual reality of belonging to God's people. A spiritual reality of inheriting the new covenant promises. What was physical and merely a shadow of things to come in Jesus has been made real in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 5 says that the priests who followed the law and who served the temple and who performed these rites in the old covenant... Hebrews 8, 5 says, they served a shadow of spiritual things. And then it goes on and it says, but in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs. And the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old covenant, since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is what Paul is driving at here for these people in Colossae. He's saying, you belong to God's people. You are circumcised in a new way, in a new covenant, with a spiritual circumcision made without hands. This is not a thing that is done physically anymore. You're all circumcised, not just the men symbolically anymore. Everyone is circumcised into the new covenant, and you belong to God's people just as much as Israel was God's people. And all that means is that you need to put off the old flesh. That's the key image. The old flesh cut away. Old flesh removed and discarded. We don't live in our old flesh anymore. We don't live in our old habits and our old hurts and our old wounds and our old sins. All of that has been cut away and made new in Christ. And we live by the Spirit. So Paul says this is as important that you understand. And he's linking the old covenant to the new. But then Paul bundles right on top of that old covenant, that old sign, a new sign now. And Paul makes a direct link between the old symbol of cutting away and removing. And he says you also have a new sign, not of cutting away the old dead flesh, but a new sign that comes with it, a sign of gaining new life. He says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So notice here, Paul does not say that this is a spiritual baptism. He said it was a spiritual circumcision made without hands, but he says these Colossians have been buried with him in baptism. This is a not a spiritual baptism, but a physical baptism. The new circumcision was not made by human hands, but these Colossians have been baptized, literally, physically, with human hands, baptized under the water. But there's a spiritual reality being pictured in this new covenant sign of baptism that we physically do as believers. And that spiritual reality is also being pictured and accomplished in the obedience of baptism. The spiritual reality is is that they were, in reality, dying with Jesus in his death even though he's not physically present, and that we really are raised with Jesus. And Paul is saying that all of this is happening through faith in the powerful working of God, who you believe raised him from the dead. And that's why baptism is so important to evangelical Christians, especially important to you know, well, people like us who call ourselves Baptists. Um, there's a reason we call ourselves Baptists, because this is super important to our identity in belonging to God. And so that's why we choose to name ourselves that way. I can't be a Baptist preacher and not take a moment here to talk about baptism. And so we are going to talk about baptism. Circumcision was the normal 
old covenant sign of a new citizen in the people of God, right? We, we went over that. You were a baby, you were born. A few days later, you got circumcised. Circumcision was the picture of, the sign of, old covenant citizenship. It meant you belonged to the covenant of God in the old covenant. But now, notice the timing of that sign. You receive the sign when you're born into the people of God. That's not a not-so-subtle hint of how Baptists practice baptism. There's a reason people are baptized as adults when they come to faith and become new citizens in the covenant of God, even later in life. This is why we don't baptize babies in a baptismal sense. We baptize adults when they make a confession of faith that they believe in Christ and become new little baby Christians in the new covenant. And Jesus explains this fairly clearly. The Pharisee Nicodemus, if you remember, was wondering, how can a man become part of God's kingdom? How do we become citizens of God, people of God, belong to God? And you remember Jesus' answer to the Pharisee Nicodemus when he came at night and asked him that question. Jesus said, he answered him, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, physical birth into a particular ethnic group is no longer how you identify as belonging to God. In the Old Testament, if you were an Israelite, you were part of God's covenant people. But Jesus says now you need to be born again spiritually. It isn't a physical thing anymore in the New Covenant. And Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee and an Israelite, even questions Jesus' sanity at this point. In verse 4, he goes on to say, "Um, How does a grown man enter his mother's womb a second time to accomplish being born again? And there's no doubt the two of them are talking about adults here. Because Nicodemus is like, I'm a grown man. How do I go back in my mother's womb and get born again in order to get into this new covenant? And Jesus says to him, "Uh, Dude, I mean born of the Spirit. You're a Pharisee. How do you not know this? And I don't know for sure that Jesus said the Hebrew equivalent of dude, but it just seems like he could have at that point. Right? So, so Jesus says, brother, seriously, I'm not saying that you need to like physically get back inside your mom's womb and get born again. I'm talking about a spiritual birth here. We're talking about grown adults being born spiritually. This should be obvious. When an adult professes faith in the Messiah, in Jesus, and trusts that he has new spiritual life, he's born again by the power of God. And so to Paul, it's obvious too. And he says right in this sentence that baptism is a sign not for babies, but for you who were also raised with him through faith. Baptism is a sign of faith, according to Paul and according to Jesus. So then, since you're newly born into faith, you're a new baby believer in the new covenant, that's when you get the sign of the new covenant. Not when you're four days old, but when maybe you're 14 years old, or 24 years old, or 40 years old, or 84 years old. That's when you become a new baby believer. That's when you become a new citizen of the covenant, and that's when you get the sign of the covenant. And Jesus told the disciples their final and greatest commandment in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And after his first amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2, the people asked the apostle Peter, What should we do? And he said, Repent and be baptized. 
And so in Acts 2.41, it says, Those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. These are physical baptisms. And it's by baptism that we symbolize not simply the cutting away of the old flesh like the old circumcision did. That symbol is present in the putting to death of the old self being buried in baptism, going under the waters of baptism, going into the grave. But you see here what Paul has added now, what's added in the new covenant symbol This is important. What's added in the new symbol that we're given is being raised by Christ into new life. It's not only putting off the old, we are also putting on the new. We don't only die to self, but we live to Christ. And this is done when we're born again by faith as adults into the family of God. Because by baptism, Paul says, we have the new sign of belonging to God. And this is important. This is a Baptism is a picture of the great exchange that takes place when we come to know Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus die for us and take away our sin and take our sin onto himself, at the same time as Jesus takes our sin in his death, we receive new life and we put on his righteousness. There's an exchange. We often think of Jesus as dying on the cross for our sins, and that's true. But you have to go on, Christian. You have to go on, believer, to realize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and we go down in the waters of baptism to be symbolically dead with Christ and dead to our sin. But it doesn't stop at just Jesus dying to take our sin. That is good news. That is great news. You want to know even better news? Jesus was raised again, and we receive his righteousness. He doesn't just take away our guilt. He gives us his privilege. We become inheritors of his wealth, of his righteousness, of his purity, of his goodness. In other words, we're not just in the courtroom and the judge says, you're not guilty. You're free from all condemnation. And we think, hey, that is good news. I'm happy with that. But then the judge says, no, 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 don't leave. Like, you're not only free to leave. I'm giving you a medal of honor. And when you get outside, there's a parade for you. And at the end of the parade, there's a big check with a billion dollars on it. That is what the great exchange is. We don't just get to say our guilt is gone. We inherit the righteousness of Christ. Amen indeed. And that's why baptism, different than circumcision, is not just the cutting away of the old, but it's the resurrection into new life. Because Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, a greater covenant, a more full, a more complete covenant. And Paul wants these Christians to know you fully belong to God. You have everything that circumcision has with a circumcision that is made not by some high priest physically, but a circumcision that is made by Jesus spiritually. You have everything that circumcision has and you've been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. You fully belong to God in every way possible. And Paul wants them to be confident. They understand how full and complete they are. How filled to the fullness of filling in Christ that they are. And Paul would want you to be confident that you are complete as a believer. That you are filled with this fullness of Christ. That you belong to God and partake in this covenant. Paul wants all believers to experience the assurance of this baptism. And as Baptists, we would believe that this would be the normal course of events. As a believer, to fully belong to the family, you would be baptized. And you would partake in obedience with that sign and that symbol and that grace and that mercy of belonging to God. But Paul has two more things to say about our union with Jesus. 
Spiritual circumcision and physical baptism are great assurances for the believer, and they're pictures of what Jesus has accomplished internally for us in belonging to him. But Paul also wants us to see the two great external benefits or accomplishments on our behalf that we've received by being made fully complete in the fullness of Christ. Okay, so spiritual circumcision and baptism, those are things that are really an assurance of this is what Jesus has done for us. This is our identity, kind of internal things. But there are two historical, factual, external realities that come with our belonging to God that Paul wants us to know. There are two principal enemies or forces that are working against us when we are in our old flesh. Before we're in the new covenant, when we're still in our old flesh, when we don't belong to God, when we are enemies of God, there are forces working against us in our old flesh and when we're spiritually dead. And the first enemy that has to be defeated for us, pragmatically, practically, externally, is our debt due to sin. And so Paul says here to these Christians in Colossae, he says in verse 14 that Jesus has canceled that debt. He's paid it, he's erased it, the debt is gone, and it can no longer be used against us anymore. And I love the completeness of the NASB translation on this point. He says, I have canceled out, sorry, not I have, he has raised in Christ, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So Paul is again trying to make a complete and full statement here. You don't understand, Christians, or I want you to understand, Christians, how completely out of debt you are. It's canceled. This debt is gone. It's canceled. It was held against us. It was hostile to us. But he's taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Because of our sin and rebellion, apart from God, there was a debt accumulated against us. A debt we could never repay. Not all the good deeds of a thousand lifetimes could repay the sin of our rebellion against God. And the law of God became deadly towards us, became hostile towards us, and the enemy could use our sin as a weapon to destroy us in the eyes of God. In other words, Satan could say to God, you're just, right? You're a just God. Look at the sin of these people. You must destroy them. They must be punished for their sin. And so it was hostile towards us because our enemy could use it. But God disarms the enemy Because he's canceled the certificate of debt. The debt has been paid by Christ on the cross. He nailed the certificate of the debt to the cross. Christ was nailed as the picture of our debt to the cross. And the image Paul is using here is the habit of posting public debts on a person's door. And the certificate thereafter of those debts being paid. And you'll sometimes, remember back in the day when we used to get newspapers, you would sometimes see in the newspaper, you would see an ad talking about a debt or a bankruptcy, or whatever, and it was a public notice of somebody's bankruptcy. This was their debt position, you know, and so this is what they used to do. Sometimes your debt would get so bad that people would post on your door, this is the debt you're in, so that everybody else knows this person is in debt, but at the same time, when that debt was paid, the notice was then posted to the paper or posted on the door that that debt was fully paid and this person was debt-free, and so Paul is using this picture of sort of common debt law To say, this is what's happened on the cross. God has nailed the cancellation of our debt to the cross in Jesus Christ. That's an objective, external reality of everybody who belongs to God. You are debt-free for your sin forever. 
never to be used against you again. Amen indeed. And then secondly, the other problem that we have that we have to deal with is not just this debt that was eliminated by Jesus, but we have to deal with death. And so Paul goes on and he says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, it's true that we must still wrestle with principalities and powers in this world, Ephesians 6.12, and we've talked about the now and not yet reality of being in the kingdom of God, how we're still here, but we are there in Christ. But we wrestle now in the power of Jesus and in his shed blood, and those powers and principalities of death are as good as defeated because the blow that Jesus struck on the cross was lethal to them. 1 Corinthians 15 54 and 55 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the picture Paul paints here is different than the canceled debt. In the days before CNN and before Twitter, you didn't get news of war victories the same day or 30 seconds later. The the way that you knew that your kingdom was victorious in war was the returning generals would ride through the city at the head of a procession of a column of captive noblemen and generals and leaders, and they would parade them down the main street for their open shame and publicly proving their triumph over them. So the first picture Paul gives of his debt is of this debt cancellation notice nailed to the door, nailed to the cross. The second picture that he paints here is God as a returning triumphant general who has put to shame all of our enemies of death. And this is what God has done on the cross of Christ. He struck a lethal blow to death. Death is dead for those who belong to God. We're caught up in the same triumph, the same victory. Notice the phrasing Paul repeats in verse 15, harking back to verse 10. In verse 10, he said that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. You remember that phrasing? Jesus is superior. He's the head. He's above all rule and authority. And now, in verse 15, he now harks back and he says, Now all rulers and authorities are powerless, defeated by Jesus. Same phrase. Those rulers and authorities that Jesus is the head over, they are now... Now, a few verses later, defeated by Jesus on the cross. In other words, what power can any ruler or authority of this age, of this world, what rudimentary principle or what rudimentary spirit of this age can possibly give you any power that is greater than what is Jesus already holds and has given to you? There is none. There's nowhere else to look. Is Paul doubling down and tripling down on this message to the Colossians? Don't get sucked into the lie that you are incomplete in Christ, that Christianity isn't enough, that the gospel isn't enough, that God isn't enough. You need to be, you know, you won't reach your full potential unless you follow these other, you know, philosophies and ideas out there in the world. Paul says, no, in Christ, in the word, in the gospel, in God, you are fully complete. Amen. Amen. And nothing else is needed for you. And anything out there that tries to tell you it's truth, you have one filter. Is it true according to Christ? Okay, I'll listen to it. If it's not true according to the gospel, if it tries to tell me something different than scripture, if it doesn't align with how I know God has structured the universe and given me identity and given me freedom and the identity that I have in Christ, if it's contradictory to that, then it's not true because it's not according to Christ. 
So last week, at the start of this chapter, Paul's talking about our unity with each other and as it's found in our unity and our knowledge in God. And now Paul wants so desperately to encourage these Christians in their unity through faith with Jesus. You're not just unified with each other. You don't just, you not only just have a nice church community, which is real warm and friendly and nice to be a part of. You have unity with Jesus. You belong fully to God. And the two key words of this passage are through faith. It all happens through faith. Or we could rephrase it, maybe in words that sound more familiar to our ears, by trusting. By trusting in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. The historical reality that he entered into creation in order to live a perfect life we could never live to die a sacrificial death on our behalf, to pay our debt and to defeat death, that we trust, we live by trusting that Jesus has done this and that he was raised to life as a guarantee that God's promise, that God's new covenant with us is true and trustworthy, that God will not revoke his promise of his new covenant. It's proven by the resurrection of his son. The good news is is that we can turn away from our own failing attempts to be good people to try to earn some sort of salvation, to try to you know, put away some of our guilt by working harder at being better. We can just admit that we are a bankrupt people and honestly an angry and rebellious people. We can repent of our works and simply turn to God in faith, through faith, by trusting. By trusting God's love is real and what Jesus has done is complete. All of this is done through faith, by trust in the person and work of Jesus That's Paul's main point here. And so I urge you to put your trust in the only thing that will not fail you, the only thing that will fill you up to the fullness of completeness in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in the only thing that will not let you down, that will not leave you short of your full potential. Put your trust in the love of God and the work of His Son. And then we see that God asks us to express that faith in baptism. As we put our faith in God, as we trust in Jesus Christ, God says, you've been spiritually circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but I want you to be physically baptized. And maybe you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus and you have the circumcision made without hands, but you've not yet been baptized by the baptism that is made with hands. Sometimes my hands, maybe somebody else's hands, but somebody's hands need to baptize you into your full belonging and into your identity as a full participant, a full citizen in the kingdom of God and belonging fully to God. You haven't participated in the final great commission that that Jesus gave to his disciples to go to all the nations and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We had a baptism service, you remember, a couple of months ago that was really, really encouraging for everybody who is here, to witness and to participate in. And this whole church family, and more importantly, your whole heavenly family, wants that assurance and that encouragement for you. So if you're here today and you haven't been baptized yet, then come talk to me. There's some contact information here. You're watching online and you've never understood baptism in the way that I just described it. It's important to God, not because baptism saves you, but because baptism gives you the assurance of how fully filled up and full and complete you are in Christ and belonging to him. And maybe you're here today and you don't, haven't even taken that first step of, by trust, through faith, by trusting in God. Well, then I would encourage you to take that step. 
Maybe you've been listening to all of the deceitful philosophies of the world, all of the rudimentary spirits and elementary spirits of this world that have been trying to tell you that this is not enough and that you have to look somewhere else to get your full potential and to be fully filled up. Paul says no to these Christians in Colossae. Don't listen to the Greek you know, rhetorical speakers. Don't listen to the Roman sophists. Don't listen to the Gnostics. Don't listen to you know, the, the polytheists. Don't listen to all of those people out there. Don't listen. That's not where completeness is found. Completeness is found fully in Jesus Christ. And you have Jesus Christ. You have the fullness of deity. You have the fullness of God dwelling in you. There's nothing more full than that. Let's pray. Father God, once again, we just thank you for this incredible reality that you have pictured and pictured and pictured and pictured and pictured again for us so that we would get it, that we are your people, that we belong to you, that you chose us out of the world, that you have given us a sign to say, these are my children, this is my daughter, this is my son, these are my citizens. And then you gave us your son to come and say, they are mine, they are in me, and I am in them. They are fully complete in me. They have died with me in death, and all the debt and death is finished and canceled. And I have raised them to new life. They are fully complete, fully eternal, full eternal life. All the riches, everything that I have is theirs. My righteousness, my glory, my wealth, my inheritance, it's theirs. Father, this is your love letter. This is your message, the good news, the gospel that you tell us again and again and again. So, Father, forgive us when we go looking elsewhere thinking this isn't enough. You know, I'm not reaching my full potential in the kingdom of God. Father, forgive us when we are listening with tickled ears to the deceitful philosophies of this world. And bring our eyes and our hearts and our minds, as Paul has been repeating over and over and over again, to be filled up with wisdom and knowledge and understanding of you. You are where all of our minds are renewed and made complete. What an incredible message, Lord. Just pray we would take it to heart. Know how fully we belong to you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.